Okay, do you guys just want to go ahead and start? Sure. Do so, you wanna yeah, I'll introduce you guys and then you can start. Okay. So, hi everyone, this is Mocha Scientist for Kids. And then if you could switch this slide, that would be amazing. Okay. So today we have a presentation from Ms. Weathers, Director of DEA Mid-Atlantic Laboratory, and Ms. Brown, Forensic Chemist at the DAA. So please welcome them, and if you have any questions, just ask them at the end. So go ahead. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ms. Weathers. I'm the Director of DEA Mid-Atlantic Laboratory. We're located in uh, Largo, Maryland, and Prince George's County. And me today is Kelly Brown. Kelly is also a chemist, forensic chemist in our laboratory. And um, what we're gonna present to you today is a day in the life of a DEA chemist. Uh, many of you may have seen CSI. There are some things that we do that are similar to CSI. There are some things that we do um, that are very different from CSI. So first, I just want to tell you a little bit about the Drug Enforcement Administration. The Drug Enforcement Administration um, is a federal law enforcement agency that is responsible for seizing controlled substances that are on the street. So we're talking about narcotics like cocaine, marijuana, uh, pills, heroin. Um, you've probably heard a lot about the opioid crisis we would be the agency leading the charge against the opioid crisis. Um, our mission, the laboratory system mission, is to deliver quality forensic information to the law enforcement officials for them to use in court to complete their case so they can arrest the bad guys. Uh, there are four core series employees in the DEA. The first are the special agents, which are probably the series you're most familiar with. They're, they're, they are the officers um, of the law enforcement agency. The second are the diversion investigators. The diversion investigators investigate doctors and pharmacies to make sure that they are prescribing, um, that they're prescribing medication the way that it's intended to be prescribed, especially in the cases, in the case of narcotics and other strong um, drugs. Sorry about that. Uh, intelligence analysts, would be the third core series, the intelligence analysts help to put the pieces of the puzzle together for the agent. So in other words, um, they, they are key to the investigation in maybe putting together how a particular cartel is organized, or they may put information together um, about drug routes where drugs are being imported into the United States. And then the fourth will be us, the forensic chemist. And we'll talk more about that as we go on today. So first, how do you do need to have at least a four-year degree, um, preferably chemistry or biochemistry. You have to have 30 hours of chemistry, um, six hours of physics, and you also have to have taken calculus in college. Um, you have to, in order to, because it's a position of trust with the federal government, you have to be able to get a top secret security clearance because we have access to sensitive information. Um, I'm sorry. 
We have access to sensitive information, uh, so we require top secret security clearance, um, which includes a drug test, a criminal history check, a fingerprint check. They actually look at your financial background, um, not to see how much money you owe, but to make sure that you're responsible in paying your debt. Um, what I usually tell people, especially um, people that are still in high school or, or middle school, is that one bad decision could really kind of make or break you. Um, so I really like to stress the importance of the top secret security clearance now. Because the things that you do um, with your friends when maybe you make um, a bad decision and to go along with the crowd and do something that you know the crowd is doing that is not correct or is not intentional uh, could be one of those things that come up later when you're trying to get a background um, investigation um, or a background clearance. So once you're brought on board as a chemist or once you pass the background check, then we do an 18-week training course at Quantico. And I'll advance to the next slide. Sorry, I'm having trouble here advancing. Uh-oh. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'm going to let Kelly take over from here because Kelly is one of our, Kelly was actually a trained basic forensic chemist class in Quantico um, just a few years ago, barely more recent than I have been there. And so I'm going to let Kelly take over this part. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, um, Ms. Weathers. So, um, yeah, like Ms. Weathers said, it's very, very important that you make the correct decisions in life. Um, make sure you're focusing on, you know, who you're around and make sure you get good company because once you pass the background check, you get to go to basic forensic chemist class. Um, like Ms. Weather said, it is an 18-week intensive, rigorous but fun training course. Um, it's in Quantico, Virginia, which is right off of 95, um, the Beltway going in towards Virginia. And it's fun. It's a lot of fun, but it's a lot of hard work at the same time. There, we basically learn how to be a forensic chemist. I learned how to testify. I learned all about the policies and procedures of the Drug Enforcement Administration or the DEA. Um, I learned how to conduct evidence analysis. Uh, basically, we learn how to test for various controlled substances. We also learn how to test or detect for things that aren't controlled substances. Sometimes we may get things that are not drugs. Um, so it's really, really fun. It's a really cool um, process. We also receive some um, legal training, um, basically going through everything legal and all the fun stuff because it's forensics, right? So forensics is law. So we basically learn how the law applies to forensics and forensic chemistry as a whole. So um, that picture that Ms. Weathers had of, if you can go back to it <laughs> in a second. Yeah, so this is um, just a picture of myself and one, two, three, four, five, six, I forgot how many classmates I had. A couple of my classmates, they uh, used to train eight at a time. Um, in this, we have seven. Um, throughout the process, it just depends. You have to go through different tests, different modules to basically um, you have to pass, right? And I think um, it has to be an 
you have to pass at 80%. So we take tests. So that's not to scare you all, to make you all think like, oh, you know, I don't think I can pass. But they teach you everything that you need to know as a forensic chemist. And this was in February of 2018. Now they're actually training 12 chemists at a time um, because the demand for chemists has become, I guess, increased since, you know, the demand for drugs, everything else is going up. So we need more of you all, you know, to want to come and join us on the good side to um, help the bad guys uh, put them up. <laughs> so you can go to the next slide. I'm trying. That's okay. <laughs> this is Zoom Life or WebEx Life. There we go. Yeah. Okay. So this is what it looks like in the training facility. It's very similar to the actual lab that I'm in now. The picture on the left-hand side, uh, I was actually learning how to synthesize methamphetamine. Um, the fun thing about being a chemist is that you have to learn how to make the drugs so that you can understand what you are seeing when we are analyzing the drugs on the different instrumentation that we use. And I believe the picture on the right-hand side right-hand side is the same, um, but we were all just working together as a team to determine the different precursors is what we call them. It's the different ingredients that bad guys use to make the bad drugs. So that's basically what I'm doing here in this picture. And we can move on. So I'll okay. kick this back to Rashida. All right, so our laboratory, there are eight DEA laboratories um, in the United States. Each laboratory covers a particular region of the United States. We're the Mid-Atlantic Laboratory, so our area of responsibility is West Virginia, Virginia, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina, Georgia, and of course, Maryland. We have nine states that we're responsible for. So any drugs that are seized within those nine states by a federal police officer comes to our lab for analysis. Um, we typical, typically don't get what we call street-level samples. Street-level samples would be um, small, user-level quantities. Uh, we normally get big quantities of drugs. We normally get what the dealer is going to sell to the street-level um, dealer. So the general duties of a forensic chemist, we have three main duties. Our first main duty is to analyze evidence to determine the identity of a substance. We're looking for a controlled substance because that's typically where the law is broken. We do a qualitative analysis, which means that we identify the substance. And, and oftentimes we will also do a quantitative analysis. A quantitative analysis means that we will tell the courts, we will tell the agent how much of that drug is present. So we may say that there's cocaine present in this sample and it's 53% pure. That would be a quantitative analysis. The second responsibility of a forensic chemist is to testify as an expert witness. So we have to go to court. If you've ever watched CSI or Law and Order or any of the other crime shows, an expert witness, maybe it's a medical examiner or someone that was present at the crime scene, goes into court and they tell the court what they found. So we go to court, we have to tell the court how much drugs were there because the weight of the drugs are important, the bad guy gets sentenced based upon the weight. We have to tell them what the drug was, 
and how pure it was, if it's going to make a difference for sentencing. So being able to communicate as well as being able to do lab work is very important, being able to communicate both verbally and in writing, because our reports have to be very precise. The third thing that we do, which was my personal favorite uh, when I was a chemist on the bench, was um, field operations, when we get to go out into the field and assist agents in clandestine laboratories. Clandestine laboratories are when people are illegally making drugs at pretty much any location you can think of. And we'll talk more about that later and share some pictures from some crime scenes that we've been on. So I'm going to turn it back over to Kelly. Thank you. Okay, so this is a picture of the Mid-Atlantic Laboratory in Largo, Maryland, where both uh, Rashida and I preside. This is where all the magic happens. Um, one of my favorite places in the world. Um, as you can see, it's a pretty large laboratory. So the laboratory is broken up into three different groups. Each group can hold 10 chemists. So this is my group. This is group one. So on the right-hand side, we like to refer to that as the dirty side or the wet side. That's where the evidence analysis occurs. That's where I open up all of my exhibits. That's where I take all the weights. That's where I do all of my qualitative and quantitative observations that Rashida was referring to. Um, so we want to make sure that side is very separate and we want to make sure it's clean um, just to preserve the chain of custody to make sure there's no contamination because we don't want to, you know, mix up drugs and have things all confused and everything because we have to testify um, in the court of law based on our findings. So that's the dirty or the wet side. And in the middle, and I'll go um, in the next slide, you'll be able to see pictures of that. In the middle of our lab is our instrumentation, um, not the instruments that you play um, <laughs> or musical instruments, but us as scientists, we refer to the um, techniques and the methods. We call it instrumentation because that's basically the um, machines that we use in order to detect the control substances. And on the far left-hand side, that's the administrative side. So that's where we do all of our reports. Uh, we may read emails, do some research on some things. So that's basically how each group is divided into three different sections. And then go to the next one. Oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah, so this is, this is um, just a kind of a close-up of my section. So we refer to this as the blacktop area. That is my bench. So that is a hard, non-porous surface. Non-porous mean that nothing can permeate or go in between that. We want to make sure it's something that can be easily clean. Um, we're dealing with a lot of different chemicals and things, so you want to make sure that surface stays clean. Um, in the middle, I have a glass disposal box. So we separate um, the materials that we use in order to do evidence analysis, we cannot put that in the regular trash. So I have a glass disposal box there, which is the white and green box, also as the brown burn box. So after I completed my evidence analysis and everything is done, um, the along with the evidence as well as the trash that has been used on the controlled substances, we have to burn that. So basically that gets taken to a huge uh, landfill. But because 
controlled substances are dangerous, you know, we can't put that in the regular trash. And on the left-hand side, that is my hood, which is where I do all of my analysis. You can't have controlled substances in the air, you know, the fumes and different things, you know, is very dangerous. So we have to make sure that we're working in a controlled environment where there's constant ventilation. So that's where I open up all my evidence. That's where, you know, all the meat and potatoes happens. And that's my lab coat hanging up there as well. So Kelly talked about ventilation laboratory. We do 100% air exchange every 15 minutes. And the reason mm. for that is to ensure that our chemists stay safe and is to move drugs and chemicals away from them and through scrubbers that are in the ceiling before that air is released into the atmosphere. So this released into the atmosphere safe, but that we also keep the air safe for our chemists to breathe. Yes, yes. Okay, so this is just another uh, close-up of my bench. And as you can see, I have everything organized. The very important thing about being a forensic chemist is to make sure you are clean. Um, like I said before, you don't want to have any contamination. So I know uh, you guys may be in the age where you may not like to clean your rooms or <laughs> clean up the kitchen or do chores, but it's very, very important that you keep your area clean. Um, just because, you know, you never know in your job, you may be required to keep it clean and, you know, you don't want to mix things together that shouldn't be mixed together. So that's that. Next. The importance of if, it's, if an area is not clean and a sample is contaminated, um, that can potentially be catastrophic because if you think about it, um, someone's freedom is on the line. If someone... Mm -hmm. If we analyze a sample that does not have drugs, then that person that we thought was a bad guy isn't a bad guy. They should get to go home to their family. But if we've cross-contaminated the sample and we report that a controlled substance was in the sample that wasn't, then that person goes to jail. They lose their freedom. Mm -hmm. Quality is very important to us. Yes, very, very important. And as you can see here, my hood is very, very clean. Um, I clean my hood before I start my work every day and after I start my work. Like, it doesn't matter how busy you make it or what you may be doing. It's very, very important to keep it clean. Very, very clean. Yep, even my administrative side. So this is the left side that we refer to as the dry side. This is where I do all of my um, reports, the reports for the evidence that I'm completing. But... Again, you have to be clean. This side is very important too, because as you all can see on the other side where all the chemistry happens, my lab coat stays over there. Why? Because the lab coat could be dirty. It could have, you know, drugs or whatever on it. You know, it shouldn't be a lot, but you know, that's, you have to keep everything that you are using for evidence analysis on that side. And as you notice on this side here on the administrative side, that area is carpeted because you don't want to track or bring anything from the other side that has like the um not blacktop but the um hard surface floor onto the carpeted area just for our safety and we also have custodians in the building right so we don't want to get them sick or get them exposed to anything that they shouldn't be exposed to because they don't go through the training that we go through in order to do this job so it's Cleanliness, very, very, very important. That's the take home along with other things. Be clean. <laughs> so, okay. So 
We have um, presumptive techniques and confirmatory techniques. I know those are big fancy words and you all are just like, what is that? What is she talking about? Um, basically, in order to do our evidence analysis, um, you have to first figure out, okay, what is in the sample preliminarily, right? And we have different instruments or machines that help us to determine that. Um, we have gas chromatography, which is basically a fancy way of saying that molecules will separate. So we basically have to mix our sample with the chosen solvent or solution. We mix that together and then we run it through, you know, the GC portion. That will separate the different atoms and molecules and everything that is in that. Um, we also have a technique called ultra-performance liquid chromatography, also known as UPLC. The difference between that one and gas chromatography is that gas chromatography uses a specific gas to separate the molecules, while liquid chromatography uses a liquid um, to separate the molecules. And I know um, I'm kind of giving you all a precursor to some super science cool stuff that you might learn as you get older in your school years. Um, but just the takeaway home for this is that we have techniques that basically help us to separate and determine, okay, what is in our sample? How do we determine or make an identity of that substance? We also have color tests. Color tests are fun. Um, it's basically a solution that when it comes into contact with a sample that may be a controlled substance, it'll turn a certain color. Like on the right-hand side, this is a um, positive color test for marijuana. So in the presence of marijuana, once you mix it with all the reagents and solutions, the marijuana will turn a light blue color or a faint purple color. Um, so that's very, very important, um, again, with contamination, because you want to make sure that, you know, you're seeing the correct color and you don't mix drugs with different things. Because sometimes if you mix a drug with the wrong drug, the color might be wrong or you may not have a color. You know, you really have to make sure you're clean. And that's the importance of running blanks as well. But like I said, that's a whole level of science that you may not need right now, but just know um, it's pretty cool stuff once you get there. So next. So then we have confirmation, uh, confirmatory techniques. So this is fun because, okay, now we can preliminary see what's in our sample. Now we're about to figure out, okay, what is it? Is it cocaine? Is it methamphetamine? Is it marijuana? How do we know? FTIR is one of my favorite, favorite techniques because it's pretty simple. You don't need a lot of sample at all. You can basically take like a pinch of salt. That's what I think of. If you have salt or sugar and you take a pinch, that's all you need in order to determine what a sample is. Um, basically how it works, if you think of, I'm not sure if you all um, make forts or tents at home, or cut off all the lights and start doing shadows. Like, as you can see, like I have a shadow right here. <laughs> um, each shadow is, oh, <laughs> each shadow is different, right? And so how this technique works is that a light will shine onto the sample and create a specific shadow. That shadow is unique to that sample. So cocaine has a different shadow than methamphetamine. Methamphetamine has a different shadow than um, heroin. They all have different um, ways of being identified. So we really, really use this um, as a source of identifying what, what we have. And like I said, on the left, that's the actual instrument or machine that we use. And on the right, that's um, our shadow. But the actual word for it is spectra. So this is actually a spectra of 
cocaine base or crack, uh, which is a street term, but we don't use street terms. You know, we just say cocaine base. So, next, next, next. It's coming. <laughs> right, so here's another confirmatory uh, technique. Gas chromatography, I talked to you all about that, um, but this is fancier. It's gas chromatography with mass spectrometry. So at the end, after the components have been separated in a mixture, there's then a huge blast. And that blast will break that molecule into a billion different pieces. And that's where the mass spectrometry comes in. It will detect those pieces no matter how small they are. And that's when we're really able to make um, and identification. So think of if you're at home and you drop a plate on the floor, like a dinner plate, it shatters into different pieces. Even though those pieces may be everywhere, you know, if you put them together one by one, you'll be able to make a confirmatory identification. So we like to call this GCMS. That's a confirmatory technique that we use a lot. This is one of the most used instruments or machines that we have in the lab as well as the IR. So this right here will tell us, okay, we know that um, it's cocaine. We know that it's methamphetamine. So that's very, very important, again, that we don't contaminate um, when we're doing this part of the process because this is very, very important. This is what this test along with other tests will be listed on our reports when we go to court. So it's really, really cool stuff. This machine or this experiment is extremely sensitive. Um, and what's unique about it, Kelly used the analogy of breaking a plate and then counting the pieces that are on the floor. What's unique about it is that each time this machine blasts a molecule, that molecule breaks apart exactly the same way each time. Yep. Yep. So other so, that we use in the laboratory, uh, one is called the NMR, and it's the picture that's on the left. It kind of looks like a big RQD2 uh, with a robot attached to it. What's interesting about nuclear magnetic resonance is that it's the same technology as an MRI that you would get at the hospital, except for MRI is used on people and the NMR is used on chemicals. The way the NMR works, if you think about a conductor and an orchestra, the conductor will, will, will get the horn section going and the horn section has to go at a certain time. The percussionist has to go at a certain time. Maybe there are singers and they're singing and he gives them direction so that they all work together. The NMR molecule uses a very strong magnet to get all of the molecules to align the same way, to align together. And when that happens, it gives a unique pattern, a unique printout, um, almost like the shadow that Kelly described earlier, that's unique to that particular molecule. And we're able to use this instrument to one, make a positive identification as to what the substance is. And then we're also able to um, quantitate or tell you how much of that substance is there. So we kind of get a two for one out of this instrument. Uh, some of the other used instruments that we have in the laboratory are um, liquid chromatography mass spec. It works in the same way that Kelly described um, with the GC mass spec, except for that the carrier is a liquid instead of a gas that moves the molecule through the instrument. Um, GCR, uh, GCIRD 
um, is gas chromatography with the infrared detector. So it's the gas chromatography that Kelly described paired with the FTIR that Kelly described, and it does it in a gas phase instead of a solid phase. Kelly, I'll let you record this one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, so does anyone have any idea um, what these pictures are? You don't have to talk. If you want to unmute yourself, you can. Um, but does anyone recognize these two pictures here? You can shoot it in the chat. Um, I just like to see, you know, if anyone knows or heard of these. You guys are like babies. You're still young. <laughs> so you may or may not know. Um, but basically, um, on the left, that is a trial, the famous O.J. Simpson trial where um, they were trying to prove that the glove was not his because um, he was all tied up into a murder. And on the left-hand side, that's another um, murder trial. I don't know if you all have heard of the famous Trayvon Martin case that happened some time ago. Um, so basically, with courtroom testimony, you have two different types of witnesses. You have eyewitnesses and you have expert witnesses. Um, I'm not sure, you know, I'm sure they had both eyewitnesses and expert witnesses in both of these trials. However, forensic chemists, we are um, expert witnesses. So we have to go through training. Um, we're called expert witnesses because we are an expert in forensic chemistry or in the identification of controlled substances. So basically, um, we have to go to court. And so far, I have been qualified as an expert witness six times. Not a lot, but still, every time I go, I get nervous because you have to go in front of everyone. You have to say your name. Um, the prosecution, you know, will ask you, you know, where did you go to school? You know, tell me about your training. You know, it's kind of, it's a lot on the line because, you know, you're anxious. You want to make sure you say everything correctly. But um, at the end of the day, um, we testify against our evidence. So whether it is a controlled substance or not. Well, we usually wouldn't go to court if it's not a controlled substance. But um, the fun part about this is that the evidence is the evidence, right? Um, if it's cocaine, it's cocaine. So um, what can be kind of tricky with this is that court can be, um, what can I say? Kind of like a zoo house, meaning that, yeah, like the defense attorneys, they like to say things and ask you so many questions that may throw you off. But the importance of um, courtroom testimony is that, you know, you stay true to your results. I have my lab report there to refer to. So it's nerve wracking, but at the same time, it feels great because a lot of times when we go to court, well, really 95 or 99% of the time, um, the bad guy ends up going to jail. Um, because of the totality of everyone. So you have the special agents that are there, you know, the cops there that confiscate the drugs, that bring it to us, the forensic chemists, and we analyze the drugs. So that whole group of people, we all work together to bring together the justice system. And it's really good, um, despite the nervousness, despite, you know, me going to court, you know, despite waiting for hours, because sometimes you go to court and you don't get on the stand for hours. Um, it's really, really good um, to just experience that. So, yeah, going to court is fun. That's one of my favorite things, even though it gives me anxiety, but it's okay. It's fun. So, okay. In, in the beginning, we mentioned, so that was two. We've talked about two of the three main responsibilities of a forensic chemist. 
the last responsibility or the third responsibility of a forensic chemist is clandestine laboratories. Uh, I just want to make sure we, we cover this before we run out of time. Um, clandestine laboratories were one of my personal favorite things to do when I was a chemist, and this is when we actually get to go out to the crime scene with one of the of agents, actually. Um, so the pictures that we're going to show you are from actual crime scenes um, that we've gone on. Uh, the pictures, uh, the one at the top in the middle is a bunch of pills that were used to make methamphetamine. Um, the pictures down at the bottom are actually methamphetamine laboratories. Let me go to the next slide. Okay, this is the entry team. So this is when the agents are entering the clandestine laboratory or entering whether it's a house, it could be a shed, it could be a car. Um, I've been in all different sorts of situations in clandestine laboratories, but this is when the agent is making the initial entry. So it's when they first get to the scene. Uh, before the chemist is there, we are usually waiting safely in the car until they secured the scene. So what they're going to do is go into the house, um, arrest the bad guy, put them in cuffs, and make sure that everyone is safe. And then the crime scenes tend to look like this. They're often messy. There's usually pills everywhere. There's powder everywhere. And our job as a chemist, first and foremost, is to make sure that everyone is safe. There is a lot that can go wrong at a clandestine laboratory. Um, and it's not a controlled environment. If you think about what we showed you where we work, that is a controlled laboratory, that's a controlled environment. It is designed to keep everyone safe while they're doing chemistry, while they're doing their job. When people are doing chemistry in places that are illegal, their main goal is to manufacture whatever product they're trying to make, whether it's, it's usually methamphetamine, it could be pills or something like that, but that is their main goal. Cleanliness is not their focus, so oftentimes, it presents um, an unsafe situation. Let me go to the next slide. This is what we will call a super lab. As you can see, there are three round bottom flaps, we call them, um, that are being used to make methamphetamine. In this particular case, each of those round bottom flaps is 22 liters. So if you think about a two liter bottle of soda, there's more, each one of these flaps is more than 10 of those. So this particular lab was capable of producing a lot, a lot of methamphetamine. It was also very dangerous because the chemicals that are used are very flammable. And we'll see what happens in one of the next slides. So this is a house that blew up. This particular person was making methamphetamine in their house, and the house blew up. The lab caught fire, the house blew up. Um, oftentimes, when we find clandestine laboratories, it is because they caught on fire. The fire department will respond first. Once the fire department puts the fire out, they realize that it is a clandestine laboratory, and then they will call DEA, um, and the agents and chemists will come out to the scene. Uh, one of the things that the chemists do when they're on the scene is to take photographs, and they, often, they also have to document everything that was on the scene so that when we go to court, we can prove that it was a manufacturing case, that they were manufacturing a drug, because that's a different charge. There's selling drugs and there's manufacturing drugs, two different charges. 
um, and one gets more time than the other, but we need to be able to prove that they were manufacturing an illegal substance and we need to be able to prove how much. So we need to be able to measure everything that we find on the scene. In order to keep ourselves safe on the scene, we will go in and um, what we call a bunny suit, uh, but you may know it as, um, as a Tyvek suit. We have the SCBA breathing apparatus on our back because if you remember back to our laboratory pictures, we do 100% air exchange every 15 minutes to keep the air clean. In this case, the only way that we can ensure that we're breathing clean air is to go in with our own air. So we wear the face mask like you see on the bottom left picture. We dress up in the suit. Uh, our sleeves are taped, our zippers are taped so that nothing can permeate that suit and get in so that we can get in and get out and be safe. So physical fitness is also a huge part of our job. In order to get hired, you have to pass a physical, and every year we get a physical done to make sure that we're still healthy enough to be able to wear this suit. The tank itself is about 40 pounds, and you need to be able to go in and work in the clandestine laboratory while you're carrying a 40-pound air tank on your back. These are pictures of decontamination. So once we go in, yeah, we do look like firefighters. It's the same suit, yeah. good operation. When we go in and we come out, we need to decontaminate ourselves in a very methodic, systemic way so that we don't inadvertently contaminate ourselves as we're, as we're taking our Tyvek suits off. So what you see, our, we use a buddy system and what you see is one buddy cleaning the other buddy, decontaminating the outside of the suit of chemicals so that they can get them outside of the, get them out of the suit. Okay, um, bonus. This is, these are concealment methods. So criminals tend to be very clever, smart, and over the years, I've often wondered what would happen if they use that knowledge for good instead of bad, um, instead of evil. But these are pictures of different ways that we've seen people smuggle drugs into the country. Uh, on the left are coconuts. And Kelly, I don't know if you remember what was inside of the coconuts. I don't. It was um, cocaine hydrochloride. It was cocaine hydrochloride hidden in coconuts. Um, so the shipment was made to look like just like a shipment of coconuts coming into the United States, but the coconuts had been hollowed out and contained cocaine. Um, and the shoes on the right-hand side, and I used to work in San Diego, I've seen a lot of shoes that had um, cocaine inside of the soles of the shoes. And what people would do is put cocaine inside of the soles of the shoes, they compress it, and then they will walk across the border um, and to carry, to try to carry that cocaine across the border. Uh, we've seen it inside of guitars. Uh, the bottom left-hand picture is a car bumper, uh, deodorant bottles. These are all concealment methods that were made to look like um, nothing suspicious was going on, but agents, border patrol agents usually are coming agents when people are coming into the country have um, detected these drugs and found these drugs. So this is where our job actually gets physical in the laboratory because we have to break the guitar or 
the car bomb or whatever, but yes. we have to be able to break through. Sometimes we're using power tools in order to yes. cut through, get whatever the controlled substance is out of um, out of the, the particular method that it was concealed in. Um, the bottom left is a really interesting one to me. The outside, um, the top. The, the top picture on the left is the outside of what appears to be a cell phone. When you open the cell phone up, it's actually a scale. It was not a phone at all. Um, so the phone was used to, um, the scale was used for bad guys to weigh their drugs as they were selling it to their customers. Um, the tube, yes, so it was made to look like a tube of toothpaste, but in fact, inside of it, was heroin. Mm -hmm. This is um, heroin inside of a car battery. And then that's it for the concealment pictures. So the last thing um, that we wanted to talk to you guys about is what made us decide to go into this field and to go into forensics. Um, I'll let Kelly go first. <laughs> yeah. um, believe it or not, I've always loved science. I didn't realize how much I love science until um, I really got into high school and took my first chemistry class. That was very, very interesting to me. Chemistry, not biology. Biology wasn't my thing. Um, didn't really care about how the stuff inside my body works as long as it was working. Um, but I was more interested in just like the chemicals, like, you know, pouring stuff into things, you know, kind of like Frankenstein-ish. That's what I think of when I think of um, chemistry. But that was really, really exciting um, to me. Once I uh, applied for college for my undergraduate degree, I got a scholarship in STEM, um, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. As you all uh, pursue your school career, you will start to apply for different schools and you'll see that um, they have different STEM programs. Um, I definitely encourage you all to get into that. You know, if you're not already in STEM schools, I know some elementary schools have that in high schools. STEM is great. STEM is awesome. Great opportunities. Um, so once I got my scholarship at Virginia State, I said, hey, okay, I'm going to be a chemistry major. Um, then as I, you know, just progressed into graduating from college, I worked at the pharmacy. I really realized that I like working with drugs, um, not doing drugs and not taking drugs or anything like that, but I just like working with it and the science of it. And you guys, I literally um, just Googled and I said, hmm, working at the pharmacy, I said, I wonder, you know, what it would be like working for DEA. Um, actually, no, one of the pharmacy technicians said, you know, did you ever think about DEA? And I was like, no, I never thought about it. Um, so I Googled, typed in DEA.gov. Popped up, you know, I searched and I was looking for an internship. Dialed the number, it says if you um, have, if you are interested in an internship or a student program, call this number. Called that number, believe it or not, um, the woman that answered the phone, we went to high school together way back in the day. Um, so it worked out. I called her and I asked her and I said, hey, do you all have any internships? And she said, yes, we do at the Mid-Atlantic Laboratory, which is where I work now. Um, so I had to go on an interview with Rashida um, back in 2015. And once I went on that interview and actually did my internship at the Mid-Atlantic Laboratory, 
I fell in love. Um, that's when I knew I'm going to be a forensic chemist. Um, it took me some time just because, you know, getting into the government takes some time because you have to go through the background check and everything like that. Um, but I really, really, I would say fell in love once I did my internship. And um, I have my master's in uh, forensics. So I did my master's at the Mid-Atlantic Laboratory now. I was actually able to get a lot of hands-on experience as a student at the lab. So that was really, really cool. I was able to work with the drugs and touch the drugs and, you know, do different things. Um, and I did master's thesis is just like a big presentation that you do in order to graduate. And I got a 96 on it. So that's when I said, oh, yeah, forensic chemistry is for me. So the rest is history. So, yeah. That was um, why I chose to be a forensic chemist. And I couldn't say um, I would, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. Um, it's really, really something that I love, love to do. I actually cried when I graduated. So, you know, that's how I knew it was real. <laughs> but yeah, so that's why I chose this career. And then Rashida has a nice story that she wants to share. Uh, Kelly, someone in the chat box says congratulations to you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I get so giddy when I still think about it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You can do it too. <laughs> I also cried at Kelly's graduation because uh, she did. And had mentored her through college. So to see it all um, come together for her was was exciting. It, it was it was a pretty awesome thing. Um, my story is a little bit different. I wanted to be I wanted to do forensics since I was five years old. Uh, when I was five, my grandmother got sick. And when she got sick, she required 24 hour care. My grandfather took care of her. Um, but eventually he passed away and my grandfather came, my grandmother, I'm sorry, came to live with us. So she was, when she got sick, she was left, she was paralyzed on one side and she was a diabetic that required insulin, um, that required insulin every day. So someone had to give her a needle every day with insulin. My mom normally gave her the needle, but if my mom wasn't able to do it, I did it. And I was eight years old when I did it. Uh, so when the doctors would come to the house to examine my grandmother and her physical therapist would come to try to teach her how to walk again, um, I used to just ask them all kinds of questions because I wanted, to, I wanted to know what were they doing to my grandmother and why were they doing it. Uh, they were very patient with me. They answered all of my questions and encouraged me to ask more questions. Um, so. My grandmother had a routine where we would get her up in the morning, we would bathe her, we would give her her insulin, and shortly after you get your insulin, you have to eat. Um, otherwise, if you don't eat, you can go into a diabetic coma. And I knew her routine. Uh, so after I would give her her insulin shot and feed her, then we would watch Quincy together. There was a show called Quincy M.E. Quincy was a medical examiner. For those of you that watch CSI now, Quincy was like the CSI 25, maybe 30 years ago. <laughs> Not that long. Quincy was the CSI of my day. Um, I am that old. Anyway, Quincy was the CSI of my day, and I wanted to be Quincy. So I knew what I had to do to be Quincy. I knew I had to go to college. I knew I had to major in science, 
and I knew that um, I was going to have to go to medical school. As I got older, I started, I became aware of other careers in forensics that didn't necessarily require medical school, but were just as cool to me. And that's when I found out that I could be in the lab, I could be a chemist, and I could still do forensics, and I could go out to crime scenes and do all of these other things. Um, and I did a summer internship in a laboratory. I thought that I would hate being in the lab every day. I thought that being in the lab was boring. And what I learned were that there were different types of science and there was a particular type of chemistry that I was very good at, which was analytical chemistry, which analytical chemists get to use all of the instruments that we showed you in the laboratory. Kelly and I are analytical chemists. Um, and I learned that I really liked analytical chemistry and that I'd rather be an analytical chemist instead of go to medical school. So instead, I went to grad school. I went to Miami of Ohio. If you watch football and you know the Pittsburgh Steelers, Ben Roethlisberger is the quarterback. I went to school with Ben Roethlisberger. Um, again, I'm that old. Anyhow, <laughs> he, was, he was a freshman when I was a graduate student. Uh, but I went to school with Ben Roethlisberger, and who knew he was who he is today. So the moral of my story is that I had a dream from the time that I was five years old to be um, a forensic chemist, and I set my sights on it. I found out what I needed to do to get there, did it, and I followed through, and it happened. It happened. It can happen. So if it happened for me, it can happen for you, too. Um, last slide. This is my contact information. Mm-hmm. Next is Kelly. That was the day that Kelly graduated. Oh, I know. I still look at that like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we want to turn it over to you guys. Do you guys have any questions for us? Yes. We know it was a lot.